Welcome to the Joe Kilgallen Podcast, a.k.a. Kilgallen's Pub. As always, I'd like to start off by giving a big shout out to the listeners. Thank you for all your support, all the Patreon subscribers. You guys are amazing. Just dropped a new bonus uh, podcast for the Patreon, as well as a weird little blog I did about underrated songs by popular artists. Check that out. I'm encouraging everyone to add more to the list. Maybe we could get a cool Spotify or Amazon playlist going. Also, thanks to all the YouTube subscribers. And also, I am on TikTok. I feel weird saying that sometimes because I'm in my mid-30s. But uh, it's been going fun. So everyone who's popped over from TikTok to listen to this podcast, you guys are great. It's a great app. I encourage anyone listening who's not on TikTok to join TikTok because it's not just teenagers doing dances. It's a lot of really fun stuff. Um, there's something for everybody there. And I'm very excited. Enough of the intro, everyone. I'm very excited for today's podcast. I'm interviewing um, a very old friend, someone I haven't talked to in a very long time. I met about a decade or so ago, uh, super Irish, super Chicago. So naturally an awesome person and an author, a publisher of four books, including uh, Carnival of Bray, which I'm actually reading right now. We'll talk about that one the most. Uh, Sorry for Your Loss, Neighborhood Girls, and You Know I'm No Good. Uh, without further ado, let's bring on Jesse Ann Foley. What's up? Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm so used to just rambling on with other comedians, and um, it's good to have someone from a different world on the podcast. So thanks for being on. I got to tell you, I'm really digging your book right now. I know it's the first one you wrote, mm -hmm. which uh, congratulations, by the way, four novels is super impressive. And I feel like not that much time in between. Yeah. Was, I mean, right? 2014 was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, and I'm sure you can relate to this. You feel like if you don't keep producing, you're going to like get forgotten. Um, not that I'm that known to begin with, <laughs> so I really have to like push it. Same yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like you just got to keep, keep producing. And so, um, so that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I think you're doing a great job of it. And I loved you had an Instagram post not too long ago that, uh, you had a bookshelf and it had four of your novels on it. And you're like, I want to fill this. Yeah. Kind of like I like people who set these goals and put them out there in the universe. So that's pretty badass. And, and again, like I was saying that I know that the genre is YA, young adult, everybody mm -hmm. listening, um, which sadly I'm no longer a young adult, but yeah. I, I feel like there's, there's more to it than just that. I think, do you have any of your friends ever say, Hey, I'm 40 and I love the hell out of it. Yeah. I mean, like, that's, that's kind of the thing is like, and, and by the way, the, the carnival at Bray, this, if you want to feel old, this was so depressing to me. So it takes place in the nineties. Um, and it's categorized as historical fiction, like in the library. <laughs> so when I heard that, I was like, to me, historical fiction is like the civil war or like, you know, like the Oregon trail. I'm like, so my life is now historical fiction. <laughs> it's so sad. Um, but that book, I remember um, I was worried that like kids today wouldn't be able to relate to it. I was like, do they still even like know who Nirvana is? Um, and at the time I was teaching high school and they had like a no uniform day and I saw all these Nirvana t-shirts in the hallway. And I was like, oh, okay. Like they're an iconic band, you know, like people are gonna, are gonna recognize it. But then I have had readers who are like my age who have connected with it because it's about when they were teenagers, which is like what I was writing. So, yeah, I mean, I, 
I'm selfishly, well, not really selfishly, but I also for the Chicago connection, I'm really digging so far. And I'm also going to be honest with people listening right now. I'm not finished with the book. I only just got it a couple days ago. Love the cover, by the way. And it's it's got like like your grandma wearing an Andre Dawson shirt. I'm like, that was my favorite player growing up. They're getting drunk food at the Golden Nugget. Like this <laughs> stuff like that. I'm really, you know, he got his car at an auction in Galewood. Like all like the specific neighborhood references. It reminded me of when even though I know so little of Boston other than Dennis Lehane novels. Every time I re- yeah. read one of his, I, he was so good with the detail of the neighborhoods of Boston. Like you felt the fabric of those uh, areas. And I feel like you really nailed it here. Um, so that's really awesome. And I do want to be honest with everyone listening that I have not finished. I wanted to try to finish it. But again, I only had three days and, you know, with a four and almost two-year-old, Jesse, you get it. But you ever I see can. these, you ever see these, like, I swear Look, I love Regis Philbin, but there's no way he was reading a book every day. You know what I mean? They would have no. all done constantly. And I'm like, you didn't read shit, Regis. You're a liar. Yeah, no, I like completely, I always say to people, because people are always feel bad that they haven't read my book. And I'm like, dude, I don't care if you read it or not. I just ask that you buy it. Yeah. <laughs> and just put it, on, put it on yourself. But I mean, so I feel like you and I are probably the same in that. Well, I don't know. Maybe you have lived somewhere other than Chicago, but I have lived in LA for three years. Oh, you were in LA. Okay. Okay. So I have never lived anywhere else. Um, I mean, I went to college. I went to U of I in Champaign, but I don't know if that counts as like living there. I'll ask my brother. He graduated from there in May and he was down there for four years. So I'll see. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like that counts as like, you know, but whatever, long story short, I, haven't lived anywhere but Chicago. So like, it's very limiting with what I can write about because I haven't lived other places. But at the same time, I feel like I'm very critical of Chicago set TV shows, movies, books, because having lived here my whole life, I'm just like, no, that's like, I can't even watch those like Chicago PD, Chicago fire shows because the holes are, what's the show with William H. Macy? Um, Oh, Shameless. Shameless. So I watched, everybody loves that show. And I watched it once and there was a, cause that takes place in Chicago. And there was a reference to them like hanging out at Crowbar. And I was like, okay, I'm turning this off. (laughs) Cause Crowbar, I mean, I just like, that was a bar that was open when I was like 19. And it, it just like annoyed me for some reason. So I was like, I can't watch this anymore. Well, I have another one with Shameless that'll absolutely drive you nuts because I will admit I be I became a fan of the show. It's very over the top and ridiculous, but there were times like you where I'm like, I can't. This <laughs> boils my skin as a Chicago and hearing this shit. There was an episode where a dog was lost, or no, a kid got lost, and they were looking for the kid, and someone's like, "Oh, they just texted saying the kid was walking on Southport. They're in Bridgeport, or they're in back of the yards, and they yeah, say." But- <laughs> Yeah. Southport would go on the south side, funnily yeah. enough, Southport. Then in the season finale of season one, I remember this like it was yesterday because I went off to so many people. Like, <laughs> um, the one main character was trying to convince uh, Fiona, who's like the other main character. Um, I guess he wasn't a main character, but he was like the love interest for the first season. His name was Jimmy or something that, you know, meet me at uh, O'Hare, you know, you got to meet me in O'Hare. I got an extra ticket for you. We'll run away together. This is going to be great, which is fine. People on the South side take O'Hare. I'm not, that yeah. wasn't the problem. The problem was they shot it at Midway. It was so obviously shot at Midway. And yeah. I myself, 
Why did they just say Midway? Yeah, why didn't they just? I was just about to say, why didn't they just shoot it at O'Hare? But even better, yeah, why didn't they just say it was Midway? So bizarre to me, or no? Maybe I got that wrong. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe they were saying Midway, but they were clearly at O'Hare. Yeah, it make easier sense to be able to film at O'Hare because it's so much bigger uh, to get like a filming permit. Yeah, and then I'm thinking to myself, why didn't they just say they were at O'Hare? It's believable that. Did the writers think, well, Southside, they clearly take Midway. It's not the cubs stocks rivalry. You, you take whatever flight you could get. Um, I know Southsiders who take O'Hare all the time. Um, so that part was weird. Another show, you mentioned Chicago PD. Yes. Okay, national listeners, worldwide listeners, I'm sure wherever you're from, there's stuff that annoys you like this. Chicago is very specific with, we call it pop. You know, if yeah. it's Coke, Sprite, Sunkissed, whatever, it's all pop to us. <laughs> there was an episode of Chicago PD only like a year or two ago, and that show is like in its eighth season. Yeah. I found an episode of Chicago Med, so that show's great. Everyone watch reruns of Chicago Med so I could get another $12 in the mail. Um, is the one cop said, hey, here's a buck, go get a soda. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Nobody calls it, no real native Chicagoan calls it a soda, let alone someone who's supposed to be a Chicago cop. No, no. Mustache, sir. You know? (laughs) That bothered me a little bit. That would bother me too. I would not like that. And I knew someone who worked on the show and I messaged him and he said, oh, they did that just to mess with the natives. They just wanted to like, you know, mess with the natives, like to piss us off a little bit. I'm like, really? That's what they did? Just admit (laughs) it up, okay? Don't have to lie. Um, I love that you like couldn't let it go. You had to message somebody about it. No, I would be a great character study for anyone writing a novel. Uh, the the person who just can't let my memory with weird shit. It's really I, I'm I'm seeing someone about it right now. It's, it's insane how I just can pick like, hey, remember this one time? I'll tell you what happened this yeah. one. Yeah, it's a weird thing, but uh, but that yeah, really really helps with your comedy. I would think, you know, like. It does. I'll admit that. Yeah, it does. Because you got to be very observant of what's going on. I think so much of writing, writers, comedians, I guess comedians are like writers. Some comedians think too heavily on like, I'm a comedian slash writer, where it's like, yes, we all write our material. But to me, I'm a thinker. I think of the funny jokes. And then I kind of just jot down the idea. And on stage, I kind of work it out. Um, To me, a writer is someone who's sitting down and at a typewriter or you're just pen and paper and in journals and stuff like that. Maybe I don't want to call myself a writer as well um, because it's as a comedian, I don't want to take myself too seriously. And I feel like writer is one of those jobs where it's like, I'm a writer. Like that's just, it's a cool job, you know? Yeah. But I feel like comedy and I don't know anything about comedy. Like I've never written a joke in my life, but I feel like they're similar in that like the whole magic of it is making it look like you're not taking it seriously when like, at least with writing, like the more effortless it reads to you, the more work the person put into it. And I, I mean, it might, I feel like that must be the same. I just feel like it would be so hard to like go up there and tell joke after joke after joke and not seem nervous and like be able to make it all. I, I don't know how anyone does that. <laughs> uh, yeah, whenever people say Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you could go ahead. I've been talking too much. But I was, you reminded me whenever someone describes what stand up comedy is back to me, it does make me go, yeah, that is crazy. That's a weird thing to do. Why would I go on stage and talk to hundreds of strangers at a time in hopes of making them laugh for some kind of approval? That's weird. You know, it's a weird job. But like, you're right, though. It takes, 
a lot of um, hard work to make it come off effortless. And it's, I got to imagine it's the same thing with, uh, with writing, especially like description. I always felt like I'm a good dialogue writer, you mm-hmm. know, I've some script stuff here or there, nothing has really come of anything, but I, I know I could write dialogue very well, but setting like the, the imagery and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm just, that's why I love what you're doing with it. Cause I, I, I see I, I'm in that car with you guys in the beginning on the way to the Metro to mm-hmm. see the Smashing Pumpkins, um, Siamese Dream release party. So cool. My mom actually saw the Smashing Pumpkins in 91 at the Metro. Wow. She just got dragged to a show. My mom's got like a Forrest Gump type life with, when it comes to going to really cool concerts. <laughs> she's seen so, she's so many like, she's like, oh yeah, I saw them one time. They were pretty good. I'm like, how are you not going nuts over this? I would be telling everyone I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is interesting with that, with writers, it is like you were saying, it's it, to make it look effortless. I feel like though with a writer, like I was saying, like comedian, I I know some comedians who are great and they take themselves a little too seriously and it makes their comedy a little less fun. And they're they're good. They're really good comedians. And I don't think this comes across with writers, but when you got your first book published, did you think I got to start wearing scarves now? I have to dress differently. I'm a writer now, damn it. I'm published. Oh my God. I should... You know what? I should send you my first headshot um, because yes, I because also I write for like young people, so I just keep getting older, <laughs> and they stay the same age, and so I'm like I keep getting less cool. Um, you know, I drive a Kia Sedona minivan. I so anyway, my first headshot. I'm wearing like I've got like a cool haircut, got leather jacket. And like my arms are crossed, but it's to cover up the fact that I was like massively pregnant, (laughs) which is like, so yeah, I definitely feel like, and plus like uh, when I go to writing events with other writers, like they're all pretty cool. Like they're all like, you know, a lot of them play music too. And like they do. And I feel like I need to like step up my game a little bit in terms of like seeming cooler than I actually am. But I mean, one of the nice things about being um, a, a mom and like a parent and not young anymore is that like, I don't actually care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I know that my ship has sailed. Like I'm, I'm never going to be, you were talking about TikTok. I have to follow you on TikTok. I didn't know you were on there. Yeah. Um, I love a TikTok. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it too now. It's fun. I, what I like about it. Is that, yeah, like there, there really is something for everybody. If you're whatever you're into, you know, I've got my wife on and she's looking at like these DIY people who show you how to, here's how you, you know, mount the TV and hide the cords or here's how you do this and that. And um, yeah, there's all sorts of fun different. There's one that I have that shows like forgotten television and it shows like funny television clips from like TV shows in the seventies. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's your whole channel is just you digging up Archie Bunker clips and sharing it to TikTok. And then and then sometimes I'll click on the comments and like Gen Z people being like, I'm 17 and I'd love this shit to be on TV today. And it's like, yeah. so it's interesting, you know, there's, there's sports stuff. And so again, I, I'm glad that, what do you like about TikTok? You know, I, like you're saying, I love the algorithm, whatever they do. It's like, if I like something that's funny, like I'll get 20 more things that are similarly funny but not in the same way like what I do with it is because I have a I have like a timer on my phone to prevent me from like being on my phone constantly 
So every night when I go to bed, I just look at TikTok until my phone tells me to stop. And then I go to bed and it just like makes me feel good. I don't, I don't even know. Like my sister used to live in Cleveland. She just moved back to Chicago recently. And today I, I was watching something on TikTok and it was just an old interview with Joe Kim Noah, like saying that how much he hates Cleveland. <laughs> it was also on my for you page. <laughs> yeah. And I, and it was just funny. Like he was so unapologetically like mean about Cleveland and I just like send it to my sister. And I feel like I'm people who aren't on TikTok. I'm always sending them TikToks and like, I just, I love it. It's my new favorite thing. So it's just like fun. Like you said, that's where I think that's where they're getting it right. That whoever's in charge there or whatever. And I know some people have like conspiracies about what TikTok's trying to do because I guess a Chinese company owned it or something, but I don't know. It seems very safe to me. What they're doing very smart is they must have looked at what drives people crazy about the other platforms, mainly Facebook and Twitter. What kills me about Twitter is I'm constantly seeing tweets from people I don't follow. I'm like, I don't yeah. follow the person. I see their tweets every other day, like enough. And yeah. uh, TikTok obviously shows you people you don't follow, but I feel like it's stuff I like. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, that's cool. This guy's showing Michael Jordan highlights. Who doesn't yeah. want to see that at two o'clock in the afternoon? You know? I never like... I never ever come away from Twitter feeling good ever. Like I, I it makes me feel bad and worse because it's just like people sniping at each other. Like it's just it, it's not. And Facebook is just sort of I don't even know. It's just been around so long. I like I don't care anymore. But yeah, there's something about TikTok. Like I always feel better after I watch it or look at it. Um, there's no negativity. Like sometimes in the comments there is, but like it's 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 just it's fun. I love it. My, my new thing that I've been getting a lot of um, on my for you page is like the Gen Z versus millennial, like parting your hair down the middle versus like a side part. I don't know that this is like a big thing. With <laughs> I, I don't know either. It's so funny. Cause I'm seeing like the Gen Z guy stuff where oh. Gen Z, the, the haircut they've got. And maybe again, being, you know, 36 now I'm just being getting old it's a lot of like this poofiness where they have almost like a curly mop up front real tight on the sides. I know my hair is not that far from my, as I'm saying this, I realize, And, and I don't know, they just kind of have this like cockiness, like look how cool my haircut is. And I'm so thankful that I never jumped on any haircut trends. Like in grade school, I did not have the Jonathan Taylor Thomas that so <laughs> many of my friends had, you know, which was a big side part and kind of like a mushroom. Yeah. Thing. Um, yeah, because it looks like your hair is kind of curly too, so that wouldn't have worked out well for you. It would not have. No, I've I've tried to grow my hair. <laughs> this is kind of funny. When I was like, see, would have been when this book takes place, 1993. Uh, I wanted to grow my hair long, like the Green Power Ranger, because okay. the Green Power Ranger had like a long hair, and then he he grew it a little longer, and he was, had a ponytail. I'm yeah, like, cool. I want to be like the Green Power Ranger. I was like nine, and. Uh, it started to just throw up and this one kid started calling me Curly Sue. And I was like, well, that's it. That's I can't go past a certain, I look like a 1980s baseball player with the hat on and then just poofed up around the ears. You just think like Ryan Sandberg, 1987 tops baseball card. Just, it wasn't a good look. Both sides. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was the look in the eighties. Those guys could pull it off. I don't know. The eighties was just cocaine made, made bad haircuts look good. I don't know because I couldn't do it. But yeah, the whole Gen Z millennial thing is funny. Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing everyone like going back and forth about Eminem and everything like that. Oh, I don't yeah. know. 
what's your take on cancel culture? I know I'm just launching right into it with you. That's a, that's a tough question right now. You can pass on that one if you want. You know what? It's a tough question because in young adults, it, on Twitter, we were talking about Twitter, in like the genre that I write in, cancel culture is like where it's at. Like you say something wrong, you will get canceled. Yeah. And so like, I mean, there's some, there's a difference between like, canceling Bill Cosby, you know, because he's a criminal and canceling like a person who doesn't have much power, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, and if I could jump off of that, because I realize I don't want you to get in trouble for anything since it's so big in your genre, not that you're on the wrong side of any history. I'm, I, I know you well enough to know that you're not. Um, I think that should be called convict culture because some are like, well, you know, cancel Harvey Weinstein. Like, no, he needs to be in jail, which he is, th thankfully. Yeah. Uh, those, and Bill Ka all those people should be like convicted. That's, the, we're using the wrong word. And some people should be canceled then. If you're a horrible piece of shit who does crimes against humanity and are a murderer, rapist, and all these other horrible, horrific things, yeah, you deserve to be in jail forever. Um, I, I kind of try to look at more of like the individual where, did they make a mistake? Are they a bad person or did they do a bad thing? Was there a slip up along the way? Or, you know, to try to cancel Eminem for a song he did 18 years ago after, yeah. at the time, people had a problem with it. The whole Elton John thing. Um, yeah. Him and Elton John, like, hugged it out and became good buddies about it. So it's weird that some some of it's, it's I, I'm more upset where it comes from. Who's driving a lot of this stuff? Um yeah. You know, there was this guy who's a comedian who got hired by SNL and then fired the same day yeah. because of stuff he said on a podcast. Yeah, and, I heard about that. Yeah, and I, my thing is, again, long-time listeners know I have a gripe about this. Whose job is it or who, who out there thinks it's their job to go, oh, someone got a thing? I now have to look up dirt to see if I could tear them down, which is just, it's, I don't know. How do you live with yourself? That seems like a real scummy thing. I yeah. guess if you uncovered that they're a pedophile then you're like oh that's great sure i'm happy that in that case but it just seems like a weird reaction to be like oh someone got a thing and it's getting attention let me google every single thing and oh they got a parking ticket in 1998 or you know he called his ex-girlfriend fat on facebook let's see maybe he's got a history of doing that like it's just i yeah. i don't know it seems like an ugly side of uh, our culture right now yeah, no, I I totally, and I, I think you're completely right. Like, it just seems like, what's your motivation sometimes? Like, for, for in my field, it's like, well, we have to protect the youth. <laughs> you know, we're writing for kids. And so if you're an asshole in your private life, you shouldn't get to, like, be in that space with kids. But what I've noticed is when people cancel, when someone gets canceled, the one, same as, as your example, the one who's canceling them always happens to have a book coming out in about a month or two in the same genre, like as this person who's being canceled. So like how much of it is like genuine and how much of it is driven by jealousy. And like, and I also just feel like, um, like in comedy too, like it, it's affecting the way, like, I feel like a lot of, if I, I don't watch like a ton of stand up, but when I do, it feels like, people are very aware of it. You know, like they'll say, they'll like make a joke and then they'll say like, oh, I'm going to get canceled for that. You know, yeah. like, I'm sure like it's kind of baked in now into like the jokes that you're writing. Um, 
because you're like, how far can I go with this? You know? Yeah, it used to be, you know, people like Richard Pryor and George Carlin, they were notorious for we're going to draw the line. We're going to see where the line is. And it was never, neither of those two ever did like a punching down sort of thing. They never picked on people who couldn't defend themselves. Um, And I I just think there's just so much noise on Twitter Mm -hmm. that people don't really seem to know what they're fighting for or why they're even fighting. And like, that's my take on it. I'm thinking to myself, okay, you don't like the joke, but you know, it's a joke. Um, who's the victim in that joke? Is that joke really hurting anybody? You know, there was a book by this author named John Ronson called, uh, so you've been publicly shamed. And he talks, and that was like a book written before the term cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And it was about being like publicly shamed, I guess, which is another way of saying cancel culture. He's a good author. Actually, he wrote the book, the psychopath test. It's really good. I, I usually always bring it up whenever I'm um, mentioned that this particular book, but in this book, he talks about this woman who it was, she worded the joke terribly, but she made a joke about AIDS or something like that. And the funny thing is she was actually like someone who had gone to Africa to do humanitarian work. So by all accounts, she was a good person, mm-hmm. but the joke was poorly worded. She had tweeted it, got on a flight. It was like a 10 hour flight. And the tweet had circled the globe six times while she was in air. That's how viral the tweet went. Wow. She had 42 followers. There was no impact. Someone mm-hmm. saw it wasn't following her. And was like, you believe this person and how evil. And then they just kept retweeting it. And everyone's like, this is the problem. And it just kept blowing up and blowing up. She was waiting when her flight landed. She's waiting for her bags and noticed people were like gesturing over. They figured out who she was. Someone had took a picture of her going, I was on the same flight as her. <laughs> and apparently she didn't spring for the Wi-Fi on the plane. Otherwise she would have known. Yeah. Uh, you could have deleted it sooner. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, what What are we doing with that? She ended up getting fired from her job and all this other stuff. And it's like, was that, was she really hurting anybody there? Yeah. She made a dumb joke, but I don't know. It just, did, did it really, did it really hurt anybody? Um, the punishment was way worse than, yes. yeah. And that's like what you're saying with like power. I mean, this is a woman with 42 Twitter followers. That's different than like, shaming Ted Cruz for flying to Cancun when Texas is like dying, you yes. know, I mean, he's a Senator and he's an asshole and we need to like, you know, call him out on stuff because he's in a position of power, but you that- know, this, is, this is a Ted Cruz podcast. We're big fans of Ted Cruz. Here, <laughs> so I'm very embarrassed that I have you on bashing my beloved Teddy. I'm kidding. I hate that guy. I actually have a video titled, um, why I hate Ted Cruz. I can't remember what I titled it. I might've called Ted Cruz as a piece of, and I had to, you know, cover up. You can't swear on, in your title on YouTube videos. Okay. So yeah, but no, no, I hate Ted Cruz. That guy, can you imagine a man, you're married uh, or even it doesn't matter man or woman, but for the sake of uh, relating it to Ted Cruz, could you imagine if someone said your dad was a murderer and your wife is ugly and then you kiss his ass the next four years? How, there's no way his kids look at him with any kind of respect. They just couldn't. No. And then he blamed his kids for going to Cancun. He said that he, he has two daughters and everyone's like, why did you go to Mexico when Texas had no power? And he was like, well, my daughters, however he worded it, he like literally threw his children under the bus. And then he left his pet dog, his pet poodle at home in a cold house for this entire trip he's like evil he is he is he is no there's no way he loves that dog because no. he doesn't to love he can't love he's incapable of it he's dexter but he's in the senate and <laughs> hopefully doesn't murder or he might 
His yeah. dog's name is Snowflake. That's his dog's name. <laughs> God. Everything is just so lame and cheesy about that guy. And I know some good people from Texas too. And I just I yeah. feel that guy representing them. I love Texas. I just hate Ted Cruz. Yeah. No, that guy sucks. <laughs> Everything about him sucks. I hate that dude so much. I have such like disdain for him. And I usually don't go off too much on politics here because you get that everywhere these days. Yeah. Man, is that guy, he just blows. Um, his, you know, his daughters are like, you're buying me a new car for this dad, right? Yeah. So. Have you seen his like twin uh, alter ego with some uh, guest on the Ricky Lake show? Like it's a, it's a woman who was on, I believe it was Ricky Lake. It might've been Jerry Springer like 20 years ago. And she's looks exactly like Ted Cruz, but with long hair. I'll have to find it and I'll send it to you. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. That's creepy. It reminds me, by the way, this is total side note. When I was looking at your website, um, I was thinking like family and stuff like that. Your what? Your great great uncle uh, killed John Dillinger. Yes, my great great uncle killed John Dillinger. Yes. Wow. He did. What's the name of your great great uncle? Um, Timothy O'Neill. That's so cool. He was a East Chicago police officer, and I guess um, the FBI got all the credit for killing Al Capone, but it was him and his partner <clears throat> who actually did it. And then the, when that movie came out in 2009, Dillinger, I think it was called, or was yeah, it, John. who am I talking about? I'm talking about John Dillinger, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, my mom owned the gun that was used to kill him. And she was like, I don't know what to do with this gun. And at the time, like you couldn't even own a, a handgun in the city of Chicago at that time. There was some like ordinance. Um, so her and her sisters were like, what are we supposed to do with this gun? So they ended up auctioning it. And um, we thought we were going to get like all this money and some like super rich guy. There was like a bidding war. We, we went to the auction. I mean, people were like holding up paddles. I mean, it was like really cool. Um, but then the guy who ended up buying it pulled out at like after he won it. Um, and so they ended up not getting that much money. But it was cool. I mean, it was like the legit. I don't know what do you, what do you get for that four to five figures. I hope at least. I think I can't. You know, what? I wish I remembered. I think it was like five figures. It was like twenty thousand dollars or something. But then That's you had to great. pay. She had to split it with her sisters. You had to pay like taxes. You had to pay the auction house. It was like this whole thing. It it ended up being like kind of anticlimactic, but but yes, um, he did kill. John Dillinger. Piece so. <laughs> of uh, family trivia, right there. Yeah. History, you know, my I have a great. Would it be a great great uncle or a great uncle? I have, I think great uncle. Yeah, who did? Um, he did the roofing. He was a roofer, so he did the roofing on a bunch of the Franklin Roy Lloyd Wright homes in uh, Oak Park. Oh, nice. Yeah, I also had a a fictitious great uncle that I believe was real until I was like maybe too old. Uh, my dad had told me when I was a little kid that he had an Uncle Joe that was a crazy Cubs fan. And when the Cubs blew it in 1969, his Uncle Joe checked himself into a mental institution and said, don't let me out until the Cubs win the World Series. And I remember in 1998 when I was 14 saying, hey, maybe we'll meet Uncle Joe. And my dad being like, oh, there's no way you still believe that. And I was like, what? That's not true? Because I was a really big Cubs fan when I was like four or five. I was obsessed way more than any yeah. five-year-old. And then he, he, I don't know, he thought it'd be fun to make up a story about an Uncle Joe who I thought was real. 
I don't so know. So he lied to you and then he forgot about the lie. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> could have carried it on. I remember also, isn't that sad when you're a kid and you realize things? Like, do you know how old you were when you realized Santa wasn't real and that feeling? I, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember having to pretend like he was real because I was afraid I wouldn't get presents if I, like, you know, let let it known that I didn't believe in it anymore. See, that's smart. I um, I was, again, probably too old, too. I don't know. I guess I'm a believer. Yeah. Remember, yeah. <laughs> One Christmas when I was like seven or eight, I, I saw some movie where they gave Santa Claus um, something other than milk and cookies. I don't know what it was. And I said, ooh, maybe I'll if I'll give him something other than milk and cookies, I'll get even more presents. So I bought like a Santa hat or I got my mom to get a Santa hat. And I go, we'll give him a new hat because maybe he's had the same hat for too long. Like, that old. So we left it there. And of course, the next morning it was gone. But then two years later, maybe or three years later, I'm like, is this the fucking Santa hat? <laughs> like, what, what's going on? You guys couldn't have just given it to someone or you just put it in a box that I found two years later. I think at that point I'd already figured it out. But that was definitely <laughs> the nail in the coffin that Santa wasn't real. I remember being like, man, parents lie. Yeah. But I, I know. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, I was just going to say it's it's like, why are parents like now that I am a parent, I feel like I don't want to push the Santa thing too hard because like it is it is a lie. Like it's it's a magical lie, but it's it's still like and it's so easy to get caught. Yeah. Like the Santa hat. And then it, that's all it took for you to know that, you know, it was all a lie. I think about the Santa Claus lie. And I used to joke on stage about it that when I have kids one day, I'm going to tell them, no, there is no Santa because I don't want some mythical, you know, chubby guy taking credit for my awesome shopping skills, you know? <laughs> and now that I have kids actually, and I see the joy of the Christmas season and how excited they get and all that, I'm like, you know what? They're only young once and they're only this naive and innocent once. Yeah. I'm an, I hope it lasts for a long time. So yeah, I'm I'm with you on both though. I kind of ride that fence where I'm like, I'm not gonna, you know, if they come home crying when they're in second grade saying every kid says I'm an idiot for believing, I'm gonna be like, all right, listen, we gotta tell you something. Yeah. I don't want them to be delusional after a certain point. But yeah, there's cause there's a cuteness to it. It's very cute. My kids actually think that Santa is from Ireland because um so my my husband plays He's got red the, face. That's why <laughs> <laughs> the big red cheeks. Um, no, my husband plays Gaelic football, and every Christmas there's a party. Like his team has a party, and there's always Santa comes and gives presents to all the kids, and it's really cute. But the guy who plays Santa is Irish because it's he's on the team. So um, and he wears this like. I mean, they really need to spend for a new costume because this thing is like filthy. Like, you know how Santa wears white gloves? Yeah. You know how that's like part of, I'm pretty sure, you might not know this, what this is because you're a man, but like there's these things called exfoliating gloves that like you wear them in the shower and they have like, <laughs> like a rough surface and you use them to like scrub your body to like exfoliate your skin. <laughs> I've never heard of these, but they sound fantastic. How come, dudes, fellow guys out there, we got to get on board with this. Ask your wife; she'll she will know. 
they're they also have like a but anyway so this irish santa wears these like exfoliating gloves instead of like proper santa gloves and anyway so my kids meet him every year and he has an accent so my kids think that santa's irish and who am i to to tell them otherwise you can't break that for them that'll no. just that'll make them sad I think I could see Santa Claus being Irish, though. There's a jolliness, you know, an old Irish guy. You He's know. Northern European. I don't know I if like, North Pole is. Yeah, I was talking to a couple Irish guys last week, and I didn't bring this up with them. I wanted to, though, but I remember I've, I was in Dublin, like, oh my God, it's almost been 20 years. I think I was there in, like, 2004, 2005, and I was telling them how I want to get back there because they were in Dublin. And how what was striking to me was every person I saw was skinny, until they hit like the age of maybe 49 or 50. And then they looked, they had like that beer gut where it's almost like their chest is caving into their stomach. And they just kind of had that like a little bit of a waddle to their walk, like Santa Claus. Yeah. So it is kind of, I, I could see that culture being very Santa-ish. <laughs> so it works, your kids aren't wrong. How old are your daughters? Um, four, five, and six there. Wow, talk yeah. about Irish triplets. <laughs> You know what? What my first two are twelve months apart. A little over two. They're um, like twelve and a half months apart. And when I found out that I was pregnant again with my second, like everybody was like, "You're insane!" Like that. How did that happen? Um, except my mother-in-law, who was like, "Oh yeah, because two of my husband's siblings were born in the same year. <laughs> they were born both born. One was born in February." And the next was born in December. That's that is such an Irish stereotype. I worked at a bar called O'Shaughnessy's in Ravenswood. And I the love owner had that. The owner had, um, I think he was born in January and he had a sister who was born in November or something like that, which is just, talk about fertile. Holy shit. All, <laughs> just, it's really not done that much anymore. So you kind of got like that real old school Irish thing. I know, I know. Not to chew your ear off about something I'm sure you've heard a million <laughs> times over. When I was in Dublin again, going back to that, I had talked to like a great uncle who, uh, and the conversation about how Irish people would have kid after kid after kid after kid. Um, like, you know, my dad was born in 54, his sister was 53, his brother 55, and then a couple other siblings, but it was all like one year after another. Um, he said this, he said, I don't, I don't know if he was bullshitting me or whatever, but he had a little insecurity with it. He said a lot of Irish men had believed that um, if your wife had babies in a bunch in a row, no other man would desire her. And I'm like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, dude. I was like 20, even I at the time was like, that seems kind of anti-woman to me. Yeah. I was not, I was far from woke at that age, you know? 20, <laughs> I think I was 20 years older, 19 or 20. That guy would be canceled. <laughs> he would definitely be canceled, right? I don't know, that just seemed really weird to me. I'm like, I thought it was just like a Catholic thing. You know what I mean? Just having a bunch of kids in a row. That's yeah, definitely. Um, but that's great. That's really cool. Four, five, six. My stepmom, uh, who's super Irish Catholic, her and her sister are exactly one year apart. They had the same birthday. Oh, cool. Which I always thought was pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's why I asked. I'm like, are they? Are your daughters exactly 12 months apart? Yeah, no, they're one's May and one's June. One's like end of May, beginning of June. Cool. That's great. All right, let's talk a little bit about growing up on the northwest side of Chicago. I, want, I was curious about this because... I was talking with a buddy of mine um, 
he, uh, Mike Ricky, if you're listening, he's one of the only other non-comedians I've had. I think in the last like year, I've had like four non-comedians on. He owns um, a place called Mar Health and Fitness. He's a big, uh, he's a personal trainer and um, like a fitness expert. He was talking about how we both grew up in the Northwest side and how we growing up, it was all about sports and nothing with the arts and how it would have been nice. Like if we lived in an environment that was more encouraging of like going into the arts and stuff like that, because again, I, you know, I grew up, I played baseball and basketball and then football. If I had told my friends, Hey, I think I want to try for the play. They would have given me some grief. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, cause you were a teacher on the Northwest side as well. Do you, do you see that changing in blue collar areas at all? Or do you think that needs there needs to be more work done towards that? You know, I've actually never thought about that before, but you're so right. Yeah, it was up here. It was probably more so for boys, but it was, yeah, sports. And that's it. Um, and probably for us, like growing up in the 90s where the Bulls were like so, like you couldn't not be a sports fan at that time. So I think maybe that contributed a little bit, but um, I did. I taught at Taft, which is like the big high school on the northwest side of Chicago. And there, like, I love that school because, like, literally any every single kind of kid you can imagine attended that school. And it wasn't because I went from teaching at a private Catholic high school, which is like a sports powerhouse, and like the football team was like. Uh, you know, like state champions and blah, blah, blah. Bill Murray went to. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to like say that. You uh, the name, but I said that. And if people want to know badly enough, they could go Wikipedia where Bill Murray went to high school. So there, that's how I, yes. we went around it. So <laughs> you don't have to say your former place of employment. Although okay. I basically said it without saying it. <laughs> Actually, I when I taught there, I had to like moderate the super exclusive club and apparently Bill Murray had tried to get onto it in high school and he like wasn't cool enough. Um, so he tried to start his alternative. <laughs> it was called the Torch Club, was it the name of the club? And Bill Murray tried to start the Flashlight Club as like an alternative <laughs> for people who didn't get on. But anyway, um, like at, at the public school where I worked at, like it was like anything goes, you know, kids did and sports really wasn't that that big of a deal um that i like to hear because you know as a parent these are things you just don't think about until you have kids really you know i played sports i was able to get along in that world and everything like that like i said it'd be cool to have had my horizons expanded because mm -hmm. as you were talking about meeting these writer people who are also into music and stuff like that when i got into comedy I was baffled, or not baffled, that's not the word. I was more amazed, more baffled about my own upbringing, that's what I meant to say, about how much range so many people had. Like, I met people who were like, oh, yeah, I could play guitar and also do this and that. And I'm like, how? And they're like, in school, we learned that? I'm like, that. where the fuck was that for me? You know, I would have loved to have been able to do a little bit more than just tell jokes and tell you who won the World Series every year over the last 35, you know? Like, um, so I, that's why I kind of want to encourage... I don't know. Maybe my sons will love sports like me. Maybe they won't, but I want to make sure that they have options. I just want to keep yeah. uh, doors open for them as much as possible. So, yeah. I've been thinking about that too lately because um, I really want my daughters to um, play a musical instrument. And I took piano lessons when I was a kid and I don't want them to learn like that where it's like, you're learning how to play like a Christmas song. Like, and then I see like, 
because I I'm like a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, and I'm like, he like he just plays the piano. Like he doesn't like play. I mean, I know he's a rock star, but like I want my kids to like know music, not in that like. I don't even know how to describe it, but so then I wanted my daughter to take saxophone lessons. I'm like, I want her to learn how to play the saxophone. Like that, that's like so cool. But then I'm like, she's five. The lessons are like so expensive. I don't even know how much a saxophone costs. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm laughing because I watched The Simpsons two days ago for the first time in, I don't know, three years. <laughs> and it was an episode in which Homer was trying to relate to Lisa and he picked up her saxophone and tried to play it. And all he did was saxophone. That's what he was saying into this. He kept going saxophone into the saxophone. So when you said that, I don't know if you saw my face, but I started to like giggle on the inside because I kept hearing Homer Simpson's awesome voice in my head. So anyway, yeah, I can't, I don't know what the hell a saxophone cost anyway. Maybe that's, that's where I got it from Lisa Simpson. I don't know, but I'm like, I want like one of my kids to play a cool instrument. Like they learn in a suburban middle school. <laughs> <laughs> during like band like how do you get your kid to play an oboe or like a a, a clarinet or something <laughs> like, like i don't know i think but i know you're saying with the whole piano lessons in that traditional sense i think the move might be and again i have no idea i'm just speculating get your kids to just be passionate about music enough and really like love and appreciate it and then i think they could learn and learn in a passionate way where they're excited because all my favorite musicians, you know, we were both talking about how much grunge is so alive and well in your book. Um, they were self-taught in a sense. And even if they did take lessons, they eventually realized, Oh, to be truly good, you have to have creativity. I saw an interview with Kurt Cobain once um, on YouTube where he was talking about how he wasn't interested in becoming a better technically sound guitarist. He thought that would hurt his creativity. He goes, I'm happy with the way I play guitar. And I, I feel like if I learned Dorian modes and the technical side and why this is this, he goes, there are these great session guitarists I meet, but they're kind of boring. I mean, they could play anything, but they'll never be able to create something. They could just copy what other great people create. And I exactly. thought, yeah, that's a good point. Like the, the truly great songwriters, they don't give a shit if like mm -hmm. the notes aren't in the right order or if they switch from A to E minor in the incorrect way. They just know. <laughs> You plug it in, strap on the guitar and play with passion. And that's all people really care about. And I mean, we're in an Oasis show right now. Noel Gallagher was saying the same thing too once where it's just like, who, who cares? Like, I don't need to be, I don't know how to read music. Never learned how to read music. Dave Grohl learned how to play the drums on pillows. He set up pillows around his bed and had these big fat drumsticks and just copied the songs he'd hear in his, in his headphones. And then eventually when he got behind a real kit, it, it transferred over, which is crazy yeah. to think so, yeah, I think the key is to just try to teach them to be passionate. If they're going to be into something, you know, feel free to go for it. Uh, because I do definitely, there's some, about, there's some stuffy about the piano. The piano is actually a really cool, like sexy yeah. instrument even. But every time I think of a piano teacher, I think of just the most boring, I'm wearing the same pants I bought 20 years ago type of person. And, you know, just a, a cardigan and not even a cool thrift store one, like one that's just like, isn't this practical? Yeah. It's hard to take it off. Like one of those type of like grandma energy. And it's like, I don't want to learn an instrument from you. Yeah. Like, no, I, you know what? I just, on Spotify, and I need to listen to your obscure pop songs too. I'm very curious about that. But um, Spotify, like, you know, they give you songs to suggest. And I just, they, I just recently came across uh 
November rain, you know, Guns N' Roses November rain, but it was just Axel and piano. And it was so fucking amazing. And I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, I remember I had to ask my piano teacher, can I learn how to play Stairway to Heaven? Yeah. <laughs> and I had like the sheet music for fucking Stairway to Heaven. And I was like, had to learn like, I mean, like, and then I, I was like, this is what I want my kids to learn is like Axl Rose playing November Rain on his piano. Like it was just so cool. And that was not my experience. <laughs> <laughs> there is a great violinist. This is a little weird. I'm going to look at my phone because I actually have his album on my phone. I forget his last name. It's David something or other. <laughs> David Garrett. There we go. David Garrett. I think he's like Australian or something. He's got long blonde hair. He's, he's a very handsome man. I'll say that. He kind of looks like a skinny Thor. And I randomly came across him on YouTube and he did violin to Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then mm -hmm. the next song right after was November Rain. He's got this thing that he came out in 2010 called Rock Symphonies. Smells Like Teen Spirit, November Rain, Walk This Way, Master of Puppets, uh, Live and Let Die, Cashmere, you know, Led Zeppelin song. He has does a Mission Impossible theme. But it's so cool. It sounds like amazing. And the violin itself makes these songs. I don't, it's, it's stuff like that. Like you, it makes you appreciate it even more so. Like hearing a stripped down version of Axl Rose, whose voice I never thought was that great until I got older. Like I was a Guns N' Roses fan, but I always thought his voice was a little weird. I didn't realize that he has like eight octave range. Like if he wanted to, he could do like any kind of singing. He just chooses to sing like the way he does because it's got so much passion behind it. But um, oh, yeah, yeah so he's like Mariah Carey, like with his brain. I mean, he's, yeah. I gotta listen I to what's the guy's name? Garrett. David Garrett, um, November Rain, and then his version of Smells Like Teen Spirit really makes Smells Like Teen Spirit to come off almost like is this sadly beautiful song in such okay. a weird way. You know, because when you hear Smells Like Teen Spirit, you're like, oh, the song rocks. I think so much of Nirvana is just, I hear people talk about Nirvana and they're like, oh, it's, I'm not the biggest Nirvana fan. The music's too depressing. And in my head, I'm like, no, the way he died was depressing, but I don't think of their song like when i hear come as you are i don't feel depression get washed over me no. i mean the song has got some depressing lyrics but i just think of it as almost like a, like a poem um yeah. but i don't yeah i just don't think of it as that depressing you're confusing kurt like you said kurt cobain with his music definitely all right let me ask you a little bit more about your your writing because that's why i wanted you on but you and i were just chit-chatting away about other cool shit i feel like I no, no, don't be sorry. It's me when I, I we're, we're catching up right now. What was it like? I always love asking people this question when they accomplish something big, when they set out on a, on a quest for to accomplish a dream, what it was like to see. Hold on. I just realized I'm like, what is that music? My phone is playing that David Garrett guy now. All right. Sorry about <laughs> that. Audio picked that up. I had a uh, Cubs uh, retired now Cubs pitcher Ryan Dempster on my podcast. And I asked him, what was it like when you got drafted into major league baseball? I always like to ask people what it was like to accomplish a dream. So when you got your book printed, published, and you saw your name right there at the bottom, Jesse Ann Foley, what was that like? What came over you? I, well, you know, Joe, I feel like one of my flaws as a human is like being unable to like appreciate things in the moment because I'm maybe it's because I'm Irish Catholic, but I'm like, guilt. well, what horrible thing is going to happen now? Like, 
you know, I, I, I wish that I had taken more time to be like, oh my God, like I've been wanting this my whole life and like I have it now. But instead it was like, oh my God, my parents are going to read this now. <laughs> Cause you know, there's like sex and drugs and rock and roll. And I remember I gave the book to my dad and I was like, this is fiction. Like this did not happen to me. This is, this is made up, you know? Um, but I feel like it's only like when I look back on it now where I'm like, I allow myself to be like a little bit proud of myself, you know, but it's, it, it just doesn't feel right to me to like bask in like whatever success I've had. But like, it, it does feel good though. If I say, if I think about it, I'm like, I always wanted to be a writer and like now I am one and that's, that's good. I'm glad that I've done that. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. But then like you want to keep pushing yourself. Like I'm like, okay, I want my next book to be like the best book I've ever written. And and it's, I don't know how it is for you with like writing new material, but like I feel like when you're starting a new book, like you're starting at zero again every time. Like it never really gets easier. So like, yeah, I've written four books, but I'm working on a new one now and it's like kicking my ass. You know, it's it's really hard. Um so I'm always kind of like thinking about the next thing and trying not to dwell too much in like what I've already accomplished. I understand. I hear you completely on that. And I have to remind myself because I go through the same thing because it's never. Yeah, you don't want to rest on your laurels. You don't want to sit on your hands. You don't you know, all that yeah. kind of cliches. You just. What I try to do is I try to enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. you know? If I feel like if I enjoy the process as much as possible, because there are times where you like you're saying the book you're writing right now is kicking the ass. That's going to happen, of course. Uh, I feel like if I enjoy the process, then I've already like won in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, at the end of the day, that's all you've got. Once the book's finished and it's out, it's out of your control. It's out right. of you know how people interpret it or enjoy it or whatever. Is be you know you can't do anything about that. And if you don't enjoy the process you're, I think, endlessly going to be like, what's next? What's next? Mm -hmm. I remember I had a goal of getting to like 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. And then I remember right when I was like five or six away, I'm like, oh, I'm at like 9,995. I'm going to probably maybe tomorrow I'll hit 10,000. This is going to be amazing. And then I thought to myself, and then what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what's next? You're immediately going to go to, all right, cool. Now I got to get more. It's always, you're always going to want more. You're always, you're always going to want more books on that shelf. You're always, I think that's just the, the artist struggle. I think mm -hmm. it's like a curse that we almost kind of have on ourselves. So I really do think the key might be the process. Yeah. Like Paul McCartney released an album during quarantine, like that he recorded all by himself. Obviously this is Paul McCartney. He's a living legend, mm -hmm. greatest of all time at what he does. But he was talking about how much he loves being in the studio. Like he loves that process of putting yeah. his song together. And I think that's the key. I think if you could enjoy that and writing's hard though, I think there's a famous quote where it's like, I hate writing. I have, I love having written yeah. like, it's done that part. I love when I get to write the end, um, the, everything leading up to that was agony and torture and this and that, you know, but that could be, that's a lot of writers being self-indulgent though, you know, <laughs> Well, we are that. Yeah, sure. definitely. No, but I th I'm I'm actually really glad you said that because you're you nailed it. Like, I I love I hate like the Twitter wars and like worrying about reviews and like all the like 
bullshit that comes with and you, like the social media and all this stuff. But I love writing. Like I would be doing this if I wasn't get, getting paid. I was doing this without getting paid for many years. Like, and I still love nothing more than like sitting by myself in a quiet room and working on something. And yeah, I mean, that's, and the, the other thing with publishing is like, it's so slow that like by the time a book actually is published, you finish writing it like 18 months prior. Wow. So it's like this incredibly where all you have is time to like freak yourself out about publication. Um, and so that's why partially why I'm always trying to work on something new so that I'm not like counting down the days until my first review comes out. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, the process is like, that's why we all do what we do. Like, and, I, and I'm with you on the, the followers and stuff like that. Like, once you reach the goal, then you're like, okay, well now I want 20,000. Yeah. Branding. And then also when, when like you hit that goal and like the whole world doesn't change, you're like, oh wait, like that, I made that was a goal that I made in my head. <laughs> yeah. I'm reading a book right now. Um, not your book I've been reading the last few days, but before um, I'm reading, a, I'm, it's like a self-help book, which I'm not really into that world as much. It's a book called Atomic Habits. And in it, the guy talks about not setting goals and why you shouldn't set goals because really you should set, say, so say my goal is 10,000 YouTube subscribers. Instead of saying, I want to hit 10,000 YouTube subscribers, I should say, I want to put out X amount of videos a week. I want it like that's in my control. And by doing that, I could hit the numbers that I want to hit. Um, that's good. But if I think on 10,000, then you're always going to hit those numbers and there's that m mental high and low of being like, I hit it. Yes. And then the next day it's like, well, well what now? I got to keep going. So yeah. it's almost about like creating that system. You know, it's like, you don't need to lose 10 pounds. You need a system in which you eat healthier and you need like, like stuff. That's what the whole book's about. Like saying stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, like stop saying, I want to be a writer. Say to yourself, I am a writer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like stuff like that. Just like kind of like mental things, which I've never really read books like that before. I'm actually kind of digging it, but reading books like that is also different for me because you read a chapter and then you got to sit on it. You have to like reflect and think on it. You know, <laughs> you novels, you your life. <laughs> yeah. You got to like assess like where the hell have I been going wrong? You know? Um, but yeah, cause with the, I think with some of these things you want to like apply to people. I have a friend Well, he uses one example. Sorry, I've been I've been rambling too much on this one. No, but, this is awesome. Well, you know, you're cool because you're reminding me of a lot of fun shit or like interesting stuff, at least to me. I have a friend who's been like trying to quit smoking. And I always hear him say, like, oh, I'm trying to quit smoking. I'm trying to quit smoking. In the book, he mentions, don't say I'm trying to quit smoking. Say I, I'm not a smoker. So if someone mm -hmm. offers you a cigarette, don't say, Oh, I'm trying to quit. Say I'm not a smoker. You have to once you say that and start to put it out there and believe it, it does change how you um like apply yourself towards whatever it may be. It's interesting though. Uh, let me ask you this. I always want to give some value to the listener. Um, I've had Roy Wood Jr. on The Daily Show and I think I told you to check out that episode. Yeah, I be guest. I've had a cast member of SNL. I always want, I think the hardest thing for regular people, people who, aren't, who want to get into a certain field but don't know how to is like when I was talking to this uh, comedian, Brooks Whelan, who was on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. I, I had him tell the story. How did you tell us the audition process for SNL? How did you get it? Because I think regular you know, people sitting at home who are like, I might want to be on SNL one day, some 14-year-old. 
they go, how the hell is that a thing? You know? Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you, how did you go about becoming a published author? Like, did you have a friend who was in publishing or did you know someone at a different publishing house? Did you submit manuscripts all over town or what was your uh, process? I, um, I actually, so I wrote a, the manuscript for Carnival at Bray and I sent it to this agent that I had met because you can't really get anywhere without an agent. And he had read some of my like short stories and he was like, oh, I really like your work. Set, write a novel because I can't sell a book of short stories. Write a novel and, and uh, you know, send it to me. So I did and he never got back to me. Um, and then I saw on Facebook that there was like a contest being held by a small publisher um, and the winner would get their manuscript published. So I, that's, I sent it in and I, I won and it was like a super small press and like, I didn't get any money for it. It was just like, we're publishing your book. And I was like, awesome. But then it ended up like doing way better than anybody thought it would. Um, and so it got the attention of some agents and then they, they reached out to me. And so I got an agent through that. And then I was able to sell my next book to like a larger, there's like five big publishers that basically publish everything. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, you know, like there's the smaller ones, but, but my mistake there was like, I was just so grateful to like have a seat at the table that like the first agent that I talked to, I ended up hiring as my agent and like it, it ended up not being a good fit. Um, and so, but I just was just like, oh my God, like they, they, they like me. <laughs> like I, you know, so now I've learned a lot like throughout that process. And now I'm with somebody who I feel like is, is a better, better fit. Yeah. You have to remind people, I have to remind people sometimes the agent works for you. So yeah. Yeah. But that's also a classic story. I know so many friends of mine who have you know, fired their for you know, I'm still, I like my agent, but I had commercial agents. I was like, this, you suck. This isn't working. Or they thought I sucked. One of them thought I sucked. The other one I thought sucked. But um, yeah, it's, it's, they work for you. So if it's not the right fit, I think people yeah. just get so excited that like, oh my God, this is my chance. So then they just sign the dotted line with anybody. That's, that's cool though. Okay. So. But, and you know, maybe going back to what you were, sorry. I was saying you put your work out there by winning the contest. So that's, yeah, yeah. that's a big key to that. But no, I was just going to say like, um, maybe it kind of goes back to what you were saying about being from the Northwest side of Chicago and like not seeing a lot of role models who do things that, you know, in the arts and like, I just to this day feel a little silly being like, well, my agent, like, you know, you feel like, Whereas if I lived in LA or New York or something like that's just like how people talk. But I always say, I'm like, well, you know, my agent and I'm like, stop. Well, also it depends on what part of Chicago you're in though, too. If you are in, at a bar in Lincoln square and you say my agent, no one's going to turn a nose up at you. Well, that's if true. You're at three counties on Milwaukee. People are going to be like, Oh, look at Miss Fancy Pants over here. <laughs> I had it. I lived in LA from 2014 to 2017. I remember coming home to visit for something like a year later. So in 2015, I'm wearing a brown leather jacket. And right away, they're like, oh, Hollywood's in town. Look at LA Joe over here. Like all my Northwest side boys who are still loving to death, most of them. And you're just giving me like all this shit. And I had to remind them, I'm like, hey, idiots. I got this from Marshalls seven years ago. 
The one on Harlem, dude. This isn't an LA jacket. All right. <laughs> this is a Marshall's jacket. It's a Marshall's jacket. It was regularly way more expensive, but there's like a thread off. So I got it way discounted. You know, Marshall's rolls. Like, love Marshall's. Who doesn't love Marshall's? But yeah, they that's just a thing because. You know, it's very—it's a great part of the city, but so much of it is you're going to go into a trade if you're a guy, you're going to be a teacher if you're a woman. You know, just it's I used to say the Northwest Side wet dream is a cop marrying a teacher. Yeah. It's the thing on this part of town. Um, and I'm sure other cities across America have their version of that. I know New York got Staten Island. Um, L.A. has the Valley. So, like, there's just it's interesting to me. Um, but I always want to talk to people who break that mold. Um, who was your, who inspired you? Who's like your favorite writers? Oh God, that, that is like the most difficult question because I feel like. Same for me with comedians. So I feel yeah. like I'm even asking it. I, I mean, I, I read a ton. Like I, I read a lot of books for kids. Like right now I'm working on a book for, um, younger kids. So like ages six through eighth grade I'm working on. Um, so I've been Real, reading. Talk off air. Sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. Six no. through eighth grade. But off air, I've got a book that I've actually started to write a couple pages on um, for like th uh, three to six year olds or something like that. Because I read so many children's books. Yeah. Yeah. I had a funny idea that I tweeted and it got such a good response on the tweet that I'm like, maybe I can write that book. Anyway, we'll talk about it later. But you're, you're writing right. for six to eighth graders, though. That's I cool. actually have a children's a picture book coming out next year for, for children. So, yeah, you should. Oh, hell yeah. You should I'll talk. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, no, I was going to say, so I've been reading a lot of books for like middle schoolers just because I've been, that's kind of what I've been writing. And I went back and read a couple of books from my childhood that I remembered. Um, there's this book. I don't know if you read it when you were a kid. It's called Bridge to Terabithia. Um, it, it is like, I mean, it's about these two best friends and one of them dies at the end. And I read it on my Kindle. And I cried so hard that I broke my Kindle. Like my tears, <laughs> like wet my Kindle and it broke. So right now that's my favorite book, Bridget. I'm like, it is just so like simple and like heartbreaking and yeah. So, I guess I'm gonna stay away from that one. But I remember that in grade school, I don't know how your grade school was, but I felt like sometimes you're like, wait, Miss, Miss, um, Parsons fifth grade class is reading this book, but Miss Kelly's fifth grade class is reading that book and, and talking to your friends and being like, why are we all reading the same book? <laughs> I remember we were reading Flowers for Algernon, which in retrospect is kind of sad. And I, I remember someone else reading a different book, but I remember that book, Bridged uh, Terabithia. Maybe my sister's class read it, but yeah. I, I never, we never had to read it as an assignment or anything like that. Um, I don't want to read it now because I'll cry too. I've become a, since I've become a parent, I cry all the time. I used to yeah. never cry. Um, I cannot I watch things where children get hurt, like, or, yeah. No. Are you into, this might be random, are you into Marvel stuff at all? No, I'm not. I'm not. Well, you don't have to be for this, but I saw a TikTok where, I see a lot of Marvel TikToks because I'm really into that world now, um, <laughs> where they were like, which character has had it the hardest? And it was like, this one, was it Thor? Was it Iron Man? Was it this person? And without spoiling who for you, in case you get in that world, I said this one because they had kids. None of the other characters had kids. And okay. so, and I feel like a lot of the Gen Z people who don't have kids yet were like, well, why does that matter? I actually had one person say that, but I'm imagining the rest of thinking it. And you're like, just wait. That's another thing you see on social media where someone says something like, hey, this goes to all the people who think this. And I'm like, nobody thinks that. <laughs> what are you talking to? 
<laughs> you made that up. You made up a hypothetical from some insecurity you have, and you're trashing people who don't exist. That's what it feels like. You just picked a fight with nobody, and you're mad at nobody, but like you are actually mad. (laughs) Strange, very strange. All right, let me. um, I'm sorry, I've kept you for longer than I I said beforehand. We'd go for like an hour, but uh, I was having fun about some Chicago stuff for you. Um, And I and when I'm finished the book, which will be this week, I will get a book report back to you. I'm not going to critique it. I'm going to tell you what I love because I really was so desperately trying to read the whole thing before we did the podcast because I thought, oh, I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to be pro as fuck. I'm going to be like, well, Jesse, I really liked what you did with Grandma E here. I really liked it. Or Grandma I, I mean, short for Eileen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first time I read it, I read it as Grandma E. And then I'm like, that's not how you say that, you idiot. And there's a Japanese baseball player who spelled his name E-I. And that's why I was like, all right, that's where it's going there. But I like to do a fun thing. I'm actually bringing this back, but I feel like you're the fun person to bring it back. I used to do a segment where I ask people their pub favorites. Um, oh. I think you and I met in a bar like 10 years ago or so. And being Northwest Side people, we love our bars. So I figured I'd ask you uh, your pub favorites, uh, starting off with, your, I'm going to guess, your favorite beer. If you could only have one beer the rest of your life, your favorite shot. If you could only do one shot the rest of your life. Mixed drink, and then two more fun questions on top of that. But it's all pretty rapid fire. So if you only have one beer the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, oh, I'm such a Karen. All I do is drink white wine. Um, God. Oh, Gumball Head. I like Gumball Head. Gumball Head's pretty good. Yeah. That's a nice craft beer right there. All right. You can only do one shot. Jameson. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) I'm a Jameson person, too. Because a shot should have a punch to it. And Jameson... Definitely has a punch. Patty's is nice. Looking for something sweeter. Cocktail, one mixed drink. A dirty martini. See, that's a writer's answer right there. Very classy. I love classy. a dirty martini. <laughs> As a bartender, I didn't like making them though, because if you're busy, it's like, all right, hold on. I'll, I'll find some. Because you just put olive juice in it to make it dirty, right? Yeah. I like it with extra olive juice and a, cool. blue, cheese, a blue cheese olive. I'm sorry, I'm having flashbacks being a bartender. Blue cheese stuffed olives always pissed me off because it's like, we're busy. Come on, I got to stuff. I got to, like, it's like stuffing a turkey. You're stuffing blue cheese crumbles with a little olive. But then when you drink it, like, by the time you finish it, like, you can't really feel your face. And it's just so nice. (laughs) Awesome. I hope you're a good tipper, though, for ordering those. I am. I I trust that you are. All right, your favorite drunk food. You're drunk, three in the morning. Where are you going? Oh, gyros, maybe a gyros. What's your favorite gyros spot in Chicago? Kings Two. They just remodeled, actually. Which one? Kings Two remodeled. Did they? Yeah, they're open. I also the Hubs. Hubs on. um, Lincoln. I think it's Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah, that's for the SNL sketch, everyone. There used to be that, that you like it, the juice that's based off of Hubs. Is it really? Yeah. Know. If you ever go in Hubs again, they've got a painting of it just off to the side. Oh. they got a side room there from where you order. I used to live right by Hubs off of Lincoln, okay. off my Hidden Cove uh, karaoke bar. Um, all right. Uh, last one. A dead celebrity to get drunk with. It could be a historical figure. It could be an, an actor, but they got to be dead. A dead to get drunk with? Or just to party with. You don't have to get drunk with them. That's a juvenile. Um, Sometimes. Who are you going to puke with? Who are you going to... Who am I going to puke with? Oh, Amy Winehouse. That'd be a fun one. That's well, I mean, probably... someone you can puke with. But just, I had to change it because I had a guest on who was like, I'm Joe, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm like, oh, fuck, that's right. I forgot that about you. 
And so I'm like, all right, you don't have to get drunk with them, but who would you party with? Like have a good time with? Yeah, maybe Amy isn't a good answer because she, you know, but most of the celebrities that I love that I would have loved to party with died because of partying. So. Well, you're a writer. And one at that, like, you know, they're notorious for that. Who likes dirty martinis? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Charles Bukowski, he might have been, have been a martini guy. But uh, James Joyce, oh, you know who was probably a dirty martini guy? Oscar Wilde. Oh, yeah. I, I would party with him for sure. There. For sure. Yeah, he'd be a good one. He'd be a good one for sure. All right, Jesse, this was a really great conversation. I hope everyone listening, um, check out Jesse's book. She's got four great books out, working on another one. Um, jesseandfoley.com is the website. I said that right, correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, what's the best way to purchase your books? Well, how would you want people to go out and get your stuff? Wherever you buy your books, um, really anywhere. My, my favorite indie bookstores uh, are Unabridged Books and Women and Children First, but um, wherever, you, wherever you buy your books, I'm happy when anybody does. And follow you on Instagram at Jesse and Foley yeah, or in TikTok. And Foley on, yeah, TikTok, I'm not too active, but you can you can find me on there. All right, cool. Maybe I'll leave you alone on Twitter or follow you on everywhere, though, because I know, sadly, in our world today, I'm sure your publishers are like, you might want to up your numbers. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they definitely love that. Yeah. All right, Jesse, thank you so much for being on the thank podcast. Everyone, uh, that was great. Everyone check out um, past episodes. Uh, check out the Patreon. You guys are the best. Uh, cheers. Yeah.